Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. And welcome to the GC On Demand podcast. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. For the folks that have already listened in, uh, you can find me. I'm uh, at Disco Posse on Twitter. And I'm also Disco Posse in the Green Circle community, where you can find all the podcast notes for the GC On Demand. I'm very pleased to welcome back somebody who's uh, someone I've been watching for a long time. You know, and a lot of folks have have seen some very interesting, you know, work that's been done throughout the industry throughout many years. Uh, and with that, I'd like to welcome Brian Gracely. Uh, Brian, if you want to introduce yourself, of course, folks will know your voice from the Cloudcast, which is, uh, you know, one of the many, many assets that you uh, you are working on out in in the world. But if you want to introduce yourself, let them know how to find you online, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, moving up the stack. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, my name is Brian Gracely. Uh, at B Gracely on Twitter. Um, my uh, my day job. I'm director of product strategy for uh, Red Hat's OpenShift uh, platform, which is their container platform. And uh, yeah, like you said, some people may know some of the work that uh, Aaron Delp and I do, uh, hosting the Cloudcast podcast. So uh, yeah, I've been around uh, the the cloud space for I don't know five, six, seven years, and uh, around the industry for for quite a while. So excited to be on the show. Look forward to talking to you. It's it's really interesting because you've you've had such a really good broad based view of things all the way through, and I've always you know admired the way that you had keep that real broad approach to you know t- taking it all in, and then you know obviously we get a chance in the industry to act on certain areas, but always keeping that broad based view is very important, and that's where I thought it was a great role fit to see you land as as director of strategy because I really. I think it's going to be a great, they've done well to bring you on board and, you know, like, you know, let's quickly talk about the Cloudcasts. Like you've, you've seen a lot of faces, you've listened to a lot of voices and you've, you've brought a lot out to the world. And, you know, how's, how's that experience been? How many episodes are we up to now as well? Yeah, so um, so Aaron and I started it uh, 2011, maybe. So you know, probably coming up around five years of shows. Um, you know, two two sixty, two seventy, something like that. So we try and do it weekly. Um, yeah, well, you know, when we when we got started, it was always uh, you know the a couple of kind of core elements were were always driving the show. You know, one of them was uh, you know we're based here in Raleigh, North. And you know there was a certain amount of us feeling like, hey, I don't live in the Bay Area. Uh, maybe I'm I'm a little too far away from from the sort of epicenter of some of these technologies. You know, how do we how do we stay connected to that? So we, we would always reach out to people that we thought were were very smart or working on cool stuff. Um, you know, we always just wanted to have a conversation with them, kind of like this, and then made sure it was published. And um, so yeah, we you know we started off doing it uh, you know back when it felt like. You know, convergence of infrastructure was was a big topic, and and it, we were both in that space at the time, and and it kind of quickly evolved from from being about that to you know a lot of the different cloud technologies. So we've been you know looking at 
uh, cloud management platforms. We've been, you know, looking at, you know, the role that the public cloud has played, and and, you know, we've we've had some fits and starts. You know, I think we, uh, you know, we kind of jumped on the OpenStack bandwagon, you know, pretty early. We were we were at the first couple of OpenStack events, and, um, you know, we kind of got, uh, uh, you know, dis disenfranchised by that after a while. I think. Um, you know, partially because you know it didn't evolve kind of the way we kind of expected it to, and, and that was okay. You know, that was a good lesson in in how vendors can evolve with communities. Um, you know, we've been lately we've been you know digging in a lot around um, some of the things. We've always had the mindset that we always want to be I don't know 12, 18, 24 months ahead of kind of what's mainstream because it gives us a perspective on what's coming next. It helps us from a career planning perspective. Uh, we've been tinkering around with some of the stuff in serverless lately, which has been kind of a fun buzzword to, to dig into, and um, you know, and, and really kind of trying to understand what people are doing with with public cloud, with containers, and, and a lot of those fun spaces. So it's been, if nothing else, it's been an awesome networking opportunity, and and it's been you know great to kind of see where things are going, and you know what we got right and what we got wrong, and all those things. Yeah, and it's. For folks that are that want to listen in and get that ear to the ground on on what's coming next, obviously I'll recommend everybody go to it. Is it it's thecloudcast.net, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you if you find if you go to cloudcast.net, I think you'll find somebody else who probably gets a lot of accidental hits. <laughs> I forget yeah. what, the, what the website is there, but. Yeah, luckily it's not a it's not a not safe for work. So yeah, I think I, I, for whatever reason we picked the Cloudcast name and somebody else had .com or something else, and we just said, well, you know, we'll we'll kind of add some stuff around it, and hopefully some people find it someday. So um, yeah, if uh, if you end up at the wrong Cloudcast, just keep searching around; you'll eventually find us. That's right. Uh, you know, and I was lucky enough to to you know always be a, a listener. I managed to actually sit in at the OpenStack Summit for a couple of the sessions, which was really cool because it gave me that idea of you know here's a great medium in which we have access to folks in the industry. You can kind of lean forward with technology, and because people love to share their story, and the, yeah. the conversational style really helps to it it lays the groundwork, you know, and for people that are technologists consuming it, saying like, all right, well why is this stuff important? And it's not simply like nerding out on the tech because we love to do that as well. However, let's right. think about what it's actually solving. And and I've always liked that approach that you you look at what's the technology, what's what's big about it, and then why is it important? And, and what are the problems that are being solved? Those, those questions are always answered in that sort of order throughout every episode. So it's, it's definitely, like I said, a good lesson for everybody. Yeah, no, it's 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 been it's been fun, and, and I think the thing about it is the neat thing about tech these days is is there's so many mediums, like you said, to to find the thing that you like. You know, like in our case, we we tend to talk to people. It's 25, 30 minutes, and we're trying to give people some breadcrumbs of like, hey, if that's if that's interesting to you, you know, go dig into it. Um, you know, I know you're involved with like Tech Field Day. Those guys do an awesome job, you know, with a more visual platform, and they dig into the tech and they they ask you know tougher questions and. You know, so the the cool thing that's evolved out of all of this is is a bunch of people who've you know taken the initiative to to go build some communities and make it all publicly available. And and if you wanna you you want to live it at a sort of business higher level, there's there's opportunities for that, and there's tech you know there's content for that. And then if you want to dive into it more, there's there's more of that. And then obviously you know the the awesome thing about all these new platforms is you can always go get the software yourself and spin it up somewhere really quickly and cheaply, and you know get smart you know really quickly. And that's kind of a perfect lead into you know what I wanted to talk to you about. We've 
we've seen this evolution in technology and we've seen this sort of talk about, I call it moving up the stack where yeah, commoditization is the, is the phrase that we attach to it. Like, Oh, you know, the hypervisor's commodity. And I don't even want to, I don't even broach that subject because it's like, it is what it is. But what I can say is that I've seen the infrastructure as a service layer is no longer you know, exciting and sexy to a lot of folks because we've we've kind of done it well, I think, and that's great. It's become yeah. a little bit boring, and that's kind of that's what it's supposed to do. And now we've moved up to this next level where actually servicing the need of you know increasing the velocity of of applications, and that's that sort of neat new space that I see. You know, you're working in, and a lot of folks in the industry are working in. But there's also a lot of people who are saying, "Is it too much in the hype cycle?" But, you know, I I say yes and no. There's obviously some a lot of traditionalists who are not going to get into the platform as a service area or into the containerization area just yet. But they'd be, I say they'd be denying the reality if they say that it's not going to land because it's landed. You know, <laughs> so Brian, what do you, what do you think about, you know, containerization and, and all of these things and, and where it's it's working right now in the industry? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think there's a few pieces to this, right? I think, um, you know, if, if we really look at, let, let's say we, we start back with the, the IaaS discussion, I think the reality of that is if you if you look at what, what really became successful, it was never really just IaaS. It was always sort of IaaS plus. So, you know, if you take something like Amazon, for example, you very rarely heard people say, like, I just use EC2 and I just use, you know, uh, block storage or, or S3 or something, they would always say, I'm using uh, the load balancing service, I'm using a queuing service. Like There was always a couple of other things that, that you wanted. So you were always, you know, again, these were very you know, developer-driven, application-driven things, and, and they were always sort of dipping their toes into some sort of upper-level service. And I think what, what eventually kind of evolved in, in, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, is, you know, back when... Uh, you know, things, technology tends to be, it's got its own sort of heartbeat. And then there's, you know, sort of the, the economy sometimes that, that drives what its heartbeat really looks like. And so, you know, 08, 09, you know, if you really kind of map it out, was when VMware really exploded and took off, right, in virtualization and, and sort of the early IS stuff. And a lot of that was driven by that business case, which was, you know what, um, <laughs> the economy's a mess. Uh, we know we have to keep IT running, but our budgets are going to be cheaper. Uh, they're going to be, or they're going to be smaller. And and they were people were desperate for something that just immediately was going to cut their cost and and help them, you know, reduce reduce things. And and so virtualization and and kind of that IaaS mentality was perfect at that point in time. But the the, the other thing that happened at that time was, you know, uh, AWS and and even open source becoming more uh, mainstream was driving this other mindset that was, you know, I'm going to, I'm opening up this huge door for people to bring application development back in-house, in and whether that was a startup or whether that was a, a big company. Um, and, and that's where you started to see a lot of these other trends start to happen, which is, you know, containers becoming uh, an interesting uh, way to help uh, developers, you know, package things up, maybe, uh, you know, help operations, but, but very much there. And, and so I think we're... we're we're beginning to see this second cycle that's happening where, where yes, IT has to care about costs, but their business is being pushed so hard on, on being able to go faster and, and kind of 
use technology to get in their new markets that um, you know it's it's sort of driving the technology itself as opposed to just technology for technology's sake. Yeah, and I love when we talk about velocity. I'm always I always try and temper it when I because you, you obviously people will will lean towards the big stories, which is you know Netflix yep. and 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 the like. And and I love hearing those stories. I love you know chatting with Gene Kim, and he tells you about you know people that are doing 1,200 releases a day and all and like these amazing stories. Right, and then you think right, like right. I I work for you know I used to work in financial services. We would do like one release a quarter. <laughs> so for us, right. high velocity was doing three releases a quarter to a, an application environment. So sure. I always temper it as like, it's velo- higher velocity based on relative to your baseline. And and yeah. that's where it's always important that we kind of level set people because it, it, I find the conversations around the Netflixes and the Ebays and the LinkedIn's, it sometimes it, it makes people kind of glaze over, you know, when they're a traditional enterprise shop and they're like, ah, I just, I don't think I want to listen to this anymore. And they kind of yeah, separate I, from it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I gave a talk yesterday and, and, you know, sometimes these things just sort of pop in your mind and you, you can't go to an event these days where somebody doesn't talk about, uh, you know, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Uber, Netflix, you know, or maybe not LinkedIn, but, but Netflix and Uber. And you sort of think about those, those as, as businesses and, to a certain extent, what they did was they took, you know, a an existing business model. You know, so take Uber for example. You you you've always had people, and you've always, and in essence, they put the internet in between those two things, right? Airbnb did the same thing. You know, you had rooms and you had people, and and they essentially put the internet overlaying what used to be a very long supply chain or a very long channel, and and for a lot of companies, they kind of go, yeah, but that's that's not our problem. Right, and and what I find for a lot of companies, sort of the, the mainstream companies, is they have two problems. Right, one of them is um, they're they're trying to figure out this, you know, and I hate the word bimodal, but they're trying to figure out this kind of bifurcated uh, portfolio problem they have. Right, I have a lot of old stuff, but yet we know we have to do some new stuff. Like, is there some way to to kind of I don't know rationalize that so that I can I can get a little bit better with the old stuff and, and be ready for the new stuff. And then the other part of it is, um, and, I, and I like to use this example. So, if you're somebody, let's suppose you're somebody like Target, uh, you know, the the retailer, big big retailer, and and you're sitting there and you're doing your planning for three year forecasts and five year forecasting, the stuff that every large company does or mid sized company does. You know, I can I can pretty much guarantee you that nobody sitting in that room two or three years ago said, you know, we need to plan for Pinterest. We need to plan That's for this right. completely. Right, like it, it just it, some of those external services go so fast, and uh, but but in talking, for example, like with the Target team, and you know, you mentioned Gene Kim, he runs an awesome event, uh, DevOps Enterprise Summit. I got a chance to to listen to them and, and talk to them a little bit, and and they in essence, you know, said like something like Pinterest ended up driving their need to figure out a lot of these things like DevOps, how to do you know better internal collaboration because not only that event, but you know, they started to realize, like, I need a way to, to figure out how to deal with the uncertainty that's coming because I know there will be something new. I just don't know what it is, but I, I've got to be prepared to, to deal with that uncertainty. And I, and I think those two things I hear more and more with enterprises of, you know, balance my portfolio, old and new, give me something that'll sort of bridge it, and then help me with the, the unknown, you know, the, the Pinterest, you know, thing that's coming down the road that I, I can't plan for. 
Yeah, it's it's creating the uh, the ability to be agile, even if it's not an immediate need. Especially when you look at you know right. retail businesses and whatnot, they need to be able to respond. Because if you look at the ones that didn't, there's a for lease sign and there's physical stores now, right? And like that, we saw the the transition away from you know where you know like the blockbusters and 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 that type of thing right. got got unseated by Netflix. Netflix have actually Netflix, they Netflixed themselves. You know, they still operate a DVD business, but they've destroyed that that line and that's all well and good because they had the secondary business. But it, it's funny that every organization, that whole thing of like every company is will become a software company. It's I always again I I try and temper it because it's like, well, we have to embrace software in order to solve business problems. You know, will everyone be a 100% software shop? Not necessarily, but it, it would be silly to imagine that we're that we're going to be able to keep doing the stuff we're doing today as we did five years ago. Because we aren't, you know, if, even as right. slow as some of the big financials are, they're also extremely rapid in other areas of the business. So it's it's neat to see right. those different evolutions. Yeah, and I and I think. It, you know, technologists, we always like, yeah, software is eating the world. Everyone's got to become a software company that is kind of a broad brushstroke. I, I think maybe the other way to think about it is, um, you know, if you're, what, you know, what would your world look like if your interaction with your customers was was purely digital? And, you know, for some companies, they would go, well, you know, we already have a website and we already, um, but, you know, but I'll, I'll give you two really simple examples like in, like in my life um, that I think will will end up kind of reshaping some of these businesses. Um, you know, I don't, I don't go to a physical bank anymore, right? And in fact, I don't even use the bank's website anymore. I do everything on my phone. I, you know, I can, I can cash checks. I can move money around. I can do those things, and and those have ramifications for like for banks because, you know, their real estate portfolio is a big deal. You know, how many banks do I have on how many corners and how many you know ATM machines do I have? And um, so you know, that's one of those things where. You take a small piece of technology like that, where you're gonna you're gonna put the the banking interface on their phone in their pocket, and and that has some some bigger ramifications. Um, you know, another example, uh, we we've got a you know family friend who who uh, it works at Chick Fil A, and he's you know he's part of the corporate side of Chick Fil A. Chick Fil A is a big uh, fast food thing down here in, in the United States and in, in the South, and they came out with a, an app that allows you to order. Uh, you know, ahead of time, and and lots of companies do all these things where you can order food ahead of time now. But you think about them, and you go, you you potentially you you. And, and the funny thing about it is, their app literally became like in the top five of the entire iTunes store within a couple of weeks because wow. you know, they have such of a mass following. Now here's the thing: so you think about that, and you go, well, that's a big technical hurdle because you got to scale the application, all that, and you go, yeah, yeah, that that's nice. But the bigger thing is. They they now if you order on the app you still have to sit in line in the fast food in the fast food drive through you just don't have to talk to the thing anymore and what that's going to drive them and have to figure out over time is am I going to have to reconfigure a whole bunch of my stores am I going to have to figure out the order flow so that those people that that got this great you know lack of of uh, friction to interact with us but we still have a physical friction you know so how am I going to have to to reconfigure these things. So I think what we're seeing in this sort of quote unquote digital transformation is, you know, it it becomes this blurring between a digital interaction and then what's the impending, you know, fit, you know, physical downstream changes that might also have to happen. And and 
that sort of stuff is 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 powerful and, and I think for a lot of companies they're not always sure exactly what do I do if I do make these you know early digital you know footsteps. Yeah, and it's neat because if we look at what the technology is doing, it is about like mapping the user experience. And and in fact, I've 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 been spending a lot of time going through a book literally called Mapping User Experiences. It's one of the O'Reilly mm-hmm. books, and it and it's they talk about the different sort of like moments of truth. They have the one they call it the zero moment of truth, which is where you have you make information freely available, and someone discovers it, and then they purposefully become like inbound to you, saying, "All right, I I I want to find." more and that's a a neat way because before you'd have to physically drive to a store you'd have to do these things and that's how they would discover you now they they can do it from the comfort of their home and in fact like you said we look at what chick-fil-a is doing it's a it's the theory of constraints in action (laughs) that they've they've removed this constraint of you know that initial touch like people can order faster so when they do get there by golly, you've got to make sure there's no delay on delivering the physical part of that order. So it's it's neat to see how the businesses are now transforming every part of their operation because of digital acceleration. And, and it's right. exciting to watch, right? Oh, it's fun. Well, and, and the cool thing about it is it's it's like you said, um, you know, if, if you're a technologist out there, um, you know, you're going to have to sort of stretch your brain a little bit. You're going to have to learn a little bit about maybe marketing, you know, or, or sort of market impacts. You're going to learn about, you know, how the business really runs. And, you know, and I think for a lot of technologists that, that maybe are a little worried that like, oh, my, my skill might be getting commoditized. Like it's a, it's a great opportunity for you to go like, yes, I, I, I know a CLI or I know how to write some code, but, you know, can I think two steps down, down the path and say like, hey, how does this impact the business? Like, you know, can I, if I understand the business a little bit, can I work backwards and, and you know, make the technology more efficient to to kind of help drive that, and and then be able to communicate that to you know to my management team. So I want to talk about infrastructure admins. You know, we've we're yeah. we're kind of searching for this DevOps world, and we're everyone gets caught up on on what it is. And like I said, it doesn't have to be eBay, Airbnb, et cetera, et cetera. But sure. but we as operators, I think everybody has a responsibility to learn how the other half lives. And that's, you know, right. developers need to think more about infrastructure and at least be aware of the impact at the infrastructure layer. And for operations folks, I think it's critical for them to at least, you know, dabble a little bit with some of these development frameworks and especially containerization is is a huge opportunity for us in the same way that virtual machines were a beautiful abstraction to make it wrap more rapid to deliver you could you before it was ordering a physical server it takes three weeks to get a po and then it would be on the ground like it's it's 12 weeks before you could spin up one application environment because it was one server and right. now we have virtualization where we could we could create this exciting new area of sprawl, which then introduced performance problems. So then we're 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 always, you know, we're just simply moving the the goalpost a bit. It's it's again theory of constraints. Like you've you've eliminated the the need to get physical hardware, but now you're creating that next generation of problems around performance, tooling, and, and other pieces. So containerization you know maybe if you want to talk about openshift and in general look at the container environment what what should operations people be doing right now to prepare for that yeah so it's it's a it's a great question because um, 
you know, like there, there's a million there's a million definitions, for example, of, of DevOps out there, and I, I've kind of come around to, to this thinking that, you know, yes, DevOps and, and a lot of different things are about collaboration and culture and all these other things, but if you if you really boil it down, it's it's kind of this thing that says you have an impedance mismatch between how fast a, a development team could go, in theory, how fast they could write code and, and get it into a, a testing environment, and how quickly um, you know, the, the operations team can sort of empty that pipeline, right? How fast can they get it uh, into production or through QA and into production? And, and if you sort of think about it like that, um, and I, I don't mean to dismiss you know, a lot of the other stuff around culture, um, you start going, okay, you know what? What types of technologies are going to help me with that? Like, what what are causing these bottlenecks? And and what containers does in that context is a couple of, of really powerful things. One, um, it gives you kind of a consistent atomic unit, if you will, uh, for what what you're going to be passing around. You know, from your various stages within an application. So, it allows the developer to to write code. Um, it allows them to, if they want to, package up that code uh, as a container, which you know really uh, the the best you know the best definition I hear from a lot of people, and, and Derek uh, Derek Collison over at AppSera uses this a lot. He says you know uh, Docker and, and containers are really just the new tarball; they're the new uh, packaging <laughs> thing. So, um, it, and really what it says is, is I'm a developer. I can I can take what's on my on my desktop, my laptop. Um, I can package it up in a way and say here. Downstream, use this and, and be consistent with it all the time. Um, so that's one thing. So it, it creates this consistency that that what devs hand off into the system that ops is going to get the same thing downstream. So that's that's a consistency and that's a good thing. Um, the second thing is because so much of this stuff is is built around kind of the, the Linux community and, and the open source community. Um, you know, you you have a lot of uh, kind of people that are inherently thinking about the end-to-end the, the -end pipeline, right? And, and I would argue, you know, back, back when VMware got really popular, you know, the ops team really wasn't thinking about the devs. They were thinking about, look, give me a bunch of tools to, to make a VM get spun up and, and, and associate a VM with a network and so forth. But, you know, there, you, you never really would go to something like VMworld and hear about, okay, how do I interface my, my VMware, my, my vCenter environment with Jenkins, right? You right. never thought about, like, right? And... And all of the, the container environments basically are, are thinking from dev to ops in terms of, okay, does this have an integration with my, my CI CD system like Jenkins or, or anything else? Um, you know, does it, does it have uh, some awareness of what's going on with load balancing? So, so there's a certain amount of that as well that, that's kind of inherently being thought of um, because of the, the Linux community is, is open and, and doing a lot of things. Um, and then the third thing I, I think that that people have sort of realized was, uh, you know, in the virtualization days, yes, you had some some cool stuff like you had HA and you had DRS and, and people maybe turned it on and maybe they didn't because um, maybe maybe you needed it, maybe you didn't. But the way newer applications are being built, um, people don't want to have to think about automation; just kind of assume it's there. And so you're seeing these platforms emerge like a Kubernetes and Mesos and and some other things um, that that inherently are saying, look, that application expects an automated environment. And, right. and that's really different, right? Like the old, you know, the old Oracle SAP Microsoft days said, like, I just expect 
a highly available you know hardware environment or infrastructure environment and now it expects a, a you know a highly automated scalable environment and and so you know as, a, as an infrastructure person so backing all that up as an infrastructure person first and foremost um, there are so many basics of, of how to work with containers um, that, that you can go do that yourself. You can do that today. You can get you know Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows and, and learn how to build a file, uh, learn how to you know take a build script and, and put it into a Docker file and go, oh, okay, here's something I can consistently run over and over again. Um, and then the other thing is is there are so many easy ways to to spin up a little environment uh, that allows you to, to kind of tinker with containers, you know, tinker with, you know, more than one container. So how do I network them together? How do I load balance them? How do I address them? Uh, you know, we, we've got some mechanisms to do that with OpenShift. Uh, we can, you know, we can dig into what some of those details are, but, but there's lots and lots of really good tutorials that if you're an infrastructure person, you know, maybe it's not the best analogy, but, but just you know, for, for your own perspective, just think about containers as being that next hop from, from virtual machines and, and, you know, how do I, how would, if, if my development team wants to use that as a packaging mechanism, how do I then accept that and, and, and start to, you know, network it, secure it, automate it, uh, authenticate it, do all those basic things. And the, and the good news is, um, you know, there's a lot of really hardworking people, Kelsey Hightower and lots of others who are, you know, trying to build some, some really cool, you know, trainings and boot camps and lots of other things. Yeah, what's, what I love is this, the general acceptance, I think, now that we are not replacing the old with something new. And we've gotten over the zero-sum game, you know, arguments. Mm -hmm. It's an, sure. Everything's an and. And it's so, so refreshing to, to realize we, you know, maybe multi-hypervisor is still a bit far off within a single shot, but it's not it, for most people, for, for many people rather, it's they choose best of breed for any particular subset of their environment. Yeah. And it's great. So then we look at containers and I, my one of my presentations I did at VMworld was you know, the greatest reason to use an animated GIF of Iceman and Maverick hugging each other on the ship and said, hey, you can be my <laughs> wingman anytime. That's, that's what right. containers are. They're a great augment to a VM architecture because it's just, it's a great construct. It's doing what VMs did. And I've kind of argued that we're about to screw up containers the same way we did with first-gen virtual machines, where we started doing P to Vs of big, gnarly SQL servers. And so you'd have virtual machines with 12 vCPUs and 24 gigs of RAM, and they used like one-tenth of it. So I think we're we're in the, the next generation where we're about to do containers a little bit weird, but it... It's going to be really cool in two years once we get through these sort of training wheel steps. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, so it's it, it's a good point. I mean, we do what you're hitting on is is people will say, hey, you know, if you can run something on Linux, you know, why can't you put it in a container? And now you've got this sort of consistent format, kind of similar to what people did uh, back in the day with virtualization, where they said, okay, if I, you know, if if VMware or whoever supports the operating system, I should be able to virtualize it. I, you know, my 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 podcast co-host Aaron uh, Delp always has this saying. He said, you know, you you only go so long with any given new technology or platform before, you know, the people that pay you money start saying, well, you know, why can't I do that? Right. And so yeah, there there is a, you know, there's always a a thing that's 
it's kind of it's mostly it's driven by by end customers because they they if they find something new and they find something they like uh, they try and force a lot of the old stuff into it because from their ops perspective and their process perspective like it's like I don't want to create too many parallel paths and uh, it, I'm I continue to be surprised by how many customers uh, will will come to us, and I'm sure a lot of different you know vendors and so forth. And they'll say, "Look, look, I want to run this in a container. I want to run that in a container." And and in fact, in a lot of cases, they're like, "Look, I've already tried it out, and you know, as best I can tell, it more or less works." And you know, maybe they haven't stress tested it enough or or whatever. But um, you know, people are trying to to do that and. You know, if we end up calling it broken or it's not cloud native, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if customers are going to care if it gives them a benefit, and, that, and that's going to be an interesting space to watch. Yeah, the the two things that we always, that you hit on great there was scale and cloud native, right? This, as a right. purist, if you're in the next generation and you're living that 100 percent you want to build 12-factor apps, you want to do all this stuff, and then you kind of cringe when you look at somebody building a, a monolithic container. But then at the same time, you should be like, hey, if it if it solves their needs and it, it gets them using the, the container construct, and then maybe they can start to dabble a bit more with refactoring their applications and whatnot, then that's great. And then the other one is the holdback of scale. If I hear one more person who says like, well, I hear they have problems at scale. And then I just always nod. I said, this is true. You know, probably above like 30,000 containers, you're probably going to, you may run into some network problems. And then you say, well, how many virtual machines do you have today? Well, we have we have 600. Like, okay, you don't, you don't have an at scale problem of anything. You'll be able to clearly adopt, you know, OpenStack containers, whatever it is, the at scale this virtual, you know, fence that they think that they're going to run into is a long way away from where most people are consuming a lot of these technologies. And what do you think yeah. about that? Like when the, like maybe it's because of the old voices saying that I don't want this. And so I'm creating these virtual fences or do you feel like, is there a legitimate concern for people with saying, I'm wasting my time by taking something that's not fully tested and has been around for five plus years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a couple aspects of it. I, I do think there are some some architectural trade-offs that that people are going to start running into, and, and we've seen this, you know, out in the marketplace. Um, you know, I mean, quite honestly, you know, if, if if we're honest with ourselves about the sort of container as a service platform as a service space. Um, you know, it, it's gone through some some pretty big architectural changes over the last five or six years. You know, early on, they were all built to be sort of optimized for for one type of language. You know, Heroku was around Ruby, and uh, you know, some others were were optimized for some things. That that sort of changed. Um, you know, we saw uh, people arguing about um, you know whether or not containers were a good thing or a bad thing and and you know some companies would say well they're bad except we, we use them internally and, and others would say no we embrace them and um, so but but I do think to your to your point about scale you're gonna you're gonna run into some scenarios where um, you know you'd, you'd never really know how a new paradigm is going to take off right so so you do want to kind of have some planning that says hey um, you know it's it's you know, and we've seen this with with everything. I mean, we, you know, there there are way more like mobile phones than there are uh, laptop devices, and you right. know, well, it's really a computing environment. But you know, I mean, it's like a 10x sort of magnitude. 
and if you if you sort of extend that, um, you do want to be looking at platforms or architectures that that do have some inherent scalability built into them. Whether you use them or not, who knows, right? You know, are you going to be Netflix? Probably not, but but you may you know need more scale than you expect because your users will adopt it. The other thing to to keep in mind is. I think what ends up happening is, uh, and we've seen this with, with lots of other technologies in the past, is is people start out with a you know with an environment, they'll build an island of it, and then somebody else will will build another island inside the company, and then somebody else will build another island, and then at some point, uh, you know, people will say, well, I want to centralize that, or I want to kind of get this under control, and and then they run into problems that aren't you know scale of, of millions or whatever, but they start to run into how do I kind of make these things talk to each other? How do I federate them, or how do I, you know, cluster them, or, um, you know? And so, like in the in the Kubernetes world, for example, in this this next version of Kubernetes, you know, they're they're working on this idea called Ubernetes, which is, you know, how do I federate little islands of them? And, right. You know, for us, when we when we talk about architecture and technology, it's kind of like, you do want to know that that the underlying architecture is scalable. And and you do want to know that the, the people that are building it are, are thinking about these sort of federation things because historically we've seen that happen before. And so you sort of know that's going to happen again within companies and, and you want to be able to go, yeah, we you know, it may not be the best way to do it, you know, at, at day one, but but it is sort of architecturally, you know, being designed into the system. Yeah, that that's the Ubernetes concept is something that I remember OpenStack, we bumped into that as an ecosystem where like we were finally getting good broad adoption and then it suddenly happened where people are like okay great i've just i've got an open stack you know private cloud and we've we're all in with it and then we just merged with another company and they also are open stack this is great right. we can get the two to work together and you're like well we have, we actually we've never done that like <laughs> and it was literally yeah. like lift and shift out of one environment into the other because there was no way to do keystone to keystone federation and then that came i th believe that was like an ice house you know type of uh, it was like ice house kilo uh you know somewhere in that juno kilo range where that that came and and a lot of people who hadn't adopted were like aha yeah, there. That's why we don't do this because <laughs> you guys aren't ready. Yeah. And it kind of it it cements well, we, those we, of the pundits a bit. Yeah, and we I mean, well, and we saw that you know with with vCenter. I mean, people would say, uh, you know, okay, vCenter does what it does, you know, in a virtualization environment, and and then somebody would say, well, okay, I, I want to build a, a redundant environment, you know, and and it's certain distance away, and you know, people would go, well, okay, if I if I move the resources over there. How do I manage them? Because they, you know, like I can't pass along all the vCenter information. So you couldn't, you know, kind of cluster them together. You know, you start to, you do, you, you create some sort of real world scenarios, whether it's a merger, whether people are trying to do redundant systems, whether they, you know, move a headquarters somewhere for another reason, for, you know, tax reasons or something. Like you do want to know the system has those, those kind of awarenesses, or at least the people that are building it are thinking about those things. Yeah, we, I remember I literally used to, you know, vMotion and storage vMotion, you know, machines across the country from Vancouver to Toronto, the company that I was at. It mm -hmm. was like 4X type of days. And then I would tell my VMware rep, like, this is a really cool thing that I'm doing. And he's just like, you shouldn't do that. Like, why? <laughs> like that? I don't know if that's right. a good idea. And then in like 5.0, they stopped the ability to do that because they realized if it became broadly adopted, it would 
it wouldn't always go well and then they would have a problem on their hands and so they kind of like right. you know held it back and then have then had to go and actually build in a, a legitimate feature that supports doing stuff like that so it's it's funny how people consume it like you said you never know if it takes off and people start using features all of a sudden you're like oh boy you know we now have to take that into account right. as we develop especially in open source like that's it's a very interesting quandary we get in is supporting an open source platform is that you don't necessarily always get to steer the ship. Even if you're the largest contributor as an organization or as a team, there are potentially tens, hundreds of others who are able to help. And that's why, you know, Kubernetes is interesting because there is no owner, you know, there is no Kubernetes foundation yet. Although, it seems to be doing fairly well at listening. We, what do you think, Brian, on what is there? Is, do you think there's any concerns that Kubernetes could get a little fragmented over the course of the next year? Yeah, so so a couple of points on that. The the, the Kubernetes uh, code base and, and the work is actually done out of the, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. So there is a you know, there is a foundational piece in place for, obviously, for legal reasons and copyright and, and all the other things that, that foundations do. Um, I, I think that the really interesting thing about Kubernetes, and, and, you know, you can compare it or contrast it to other big projects, is, um, you know, Google's obviously probably the biggest contributor because they they brought a lot of experience from Borg, and, and when they rewrote it as Kubernetes, they, they brought that experience. Um, but they've been a, a very... Um, a very good kind of steward of the of the pro, of the program in that they really haven't you know tried to dictate where it goes and and people have different opinions on kind of the the benevolent dictator approach and um, but but I think the architecture of Kubernetes lends itself towards um, at its core it, it does a few basic things you know it's a it's it's an API in the in the kubelet and then you know it it allows itself to sort of become modular and so you you have less conflict. Of, of people saying like this is the only way to take it in this direction or that direction uh, and a little more ability to say like hey from a modular perspective like I could build a you know a healthcare specific scheduler or a financial services specific scheduler and and people can can choose to adopt that or, or not right um, so you know up to this point I think they've, they've done a pretty good job of, of saying like hey um, we're gonna we're gonna move quickly, so the velocity and contribution has been really really high. Uh, but I think part of it is you know just Google and somebody wrote a really good article about this recently is you know Google's kind of stayed out of the way uh, at least from a you know purely politics perspective. They've they've been a very good technical steward and a and a somewhat you know passive uh, political steward, which is you know a really good combination at least up until this point. Yeah, the fact that even at this fairly early you know point in the in the life cycle of kubernetes the fact they introduced the pet sets you know mm -hmm. setting and that was really interesting because it's they've recognized already that there will be legacy style you know or you know current style workloads which are long running applications that do not do right. well in in tear down you know re relaunch type of situation so it's i like that and and you're you're right it's i i I'm very encouraged by Kubernetes. Of all the projects that I've watched, this is one that I'm I'm definitely diving a lot more into just because it's going to be real. You know, we're seeing it as a background to many, many other application and ecosystem environments. So it's 
there's no doubt this one's got uh, it's got legs. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I we um, I think you know, and, and not all of our references. Uh, not to turn this into a commercial. I mean, not all of our references are public, but but we we see as much uh, adoption of, of people you know building sort of new cloud native applications on Kubernetes and, and OpenShift is. Uh, but we see a ton of people using it as as the platform to to just migrate other applications. I mean, they kind of get comfortable with it, and they go like, "Why can't this SQL database move over there? Why can't this other thing move over there?" Or just the you know, kind of the the native uh, multi-tenancy of the of the overall platform allows them to go, "Oh, okay, I I I can build some some shared systems doing this, and and it's got you know, it's got inherent logging, and it's got inherent." Uh, sort of security features built in. So yeah, it's it's. I think it's surprised a lot of people at at not only the adoption because people sometimes have some concerns about you know Google and you know the enterprise and that stuff. But I think because so many other companies have have you know actively been involved with it, it's um yeah, it's taken a it's taken a very nice path of of uh, you know broad capabilities. Exactly. Excellent. Well, Brian, this is great. I could, we could literally, I could go on for hours with you and talk on, on so many things. Hopefully we'll get a chance. We can dig in a little bit more to some of the stuff as we see your role evolve at, at Red Hat and some of the stuff that's going to come, you know, as we head into the Red Hat Summit and such, I'll love to bring you back on and we can preview things that are coming and, and, you know, the door is always open to, to have you on my my listening community is, is is always a big fan of of stuff that you've done and, and I always people are always like, Hey, you know, you guys should get the Cloudcast guys on. And like it's that's like meta podcasting where we have other podcast hosts, but not just as podcast hosts, but as, you know, you're you're living it as well as as looking forward. So it's it's been yeah. fun. No, I, I appreciate it's been fun and uh, uh, you know thanks to your thanks to your audience for for uh, for listening. Excellent. So again, Brian, how do we get a hold of you online if people want to, uh, to reach out to you? Uh, so at B Gracely, so first initial, last name on Twitter, um, you know, the, the cloudcast.net for the podcast. And uh, if you're interested in any of the OpenShift stuff, uh, openshift.com for, uh, for, you know, free software downloads and free online and, and you know, where the software and, and the code is as well. And are we? When's the next Krispy Kreme uh, challenge coming up? Uh. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So uh, the Krispy Kreme challenge for anybody who's who's never heard of it, um, it's this crazy race we do in Raleigh. Uh, it's based off of a an old NC State University dare. A uh, bunch of fraternity guys got together and said, uh, I, "I want you to run uh, two and a half miles from the school to the to the to the Krispy Kreme donuts." Uh, eat eat a dozen donuts and then run back and, and try and keep it all down and, and try and do it in an hour. So yeah, Aaron and I have have done that crazy race. It's always like the first week in February and we we do it to uh, to raise money for the children's hospital. So we'll I think we'll start cranking up that that fundraising for for 2017 again. And and uh, we've been super lucky because our community has has helped us be like the largest donors for I think the last uh, three or four years in a row. So uh, out there helping uh, very very sick kids and it's a it's an awesome charity cause. Yep, exactly. Uh, it's and that's. Uh, I'll make sure to, as we get uh, close to that as well to to get the word out uh, through my various social channels and here on the podcast because it's a great a great initiative you guys are and and thanks for for doing this. The true value of community is it's not just what we do for ourselves but for others. And God help you if you if you can survive eating twelve donuts. <laughs> <laughs> It's everybody the things you do to the kids. Uh, that's right. That's right. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Brian, and uh, and I will look forward to having a chance to chat in the future. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. 
If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? Tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.